0: the podcast for the inquisitive diver
1: hey there dive buddies and welcome to the show my next guest has served 25 years in the royal air force and fell in love with the sport of diving way back in 1999 he recognized that there was a significant similarity between life as a military man and that of a diver teamwork however there was an even more significant difference between the two when compared through the holistic ethos lens He decided to do something about this and set himself a mission to introducing human factors training into the diving profession globally. In 2019, he released a book entitled Under Pressure, which has since sold thousands of copies. Now, I have to admit that I respect and admire him for his brave contributions to the dive industry. And I say brave not because I'm admitting a man crush at all, rather that I recognize the difficulties an individual may face in attempting to create change, even when it is for the betterment of all involved. I honestly believe that what he has done so far will most definitely save lives and probably already has done so. Mr. Gareth Locke, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's uh, it's great to have an invite on here. And yeah, it has been a challenge and uh, has required a significant amount of uh, persistence to, uh, to get this going.
1: Yeah, I bet. So, um, was it a little bit like a red rag to a ball or something? You're like a little Jack Russell just chomping at the heels?
0: Yeah, well, my, my sort of personality traits are, are about sort of values-based and, and it's like, I've got to get this done. And and that actually has been a bit of a hindrance when I first started because it, it was this uh, evangelical approach of you have to change and and pissed a few people off and burnt a few bridges and, and took – A number of years to to rebuild those Um, and i think that's the same with anybody who's got a strong value base who's trying to create change it's it's tempering that that attitude to look for the long game rather than trying to do something now you're never going to change the direction of a uh say an iceberg you know the one that's broken off the, the Antarctica. You're never going to change that mm. direction really easily. Um, it takes little nudges. And actually where I've had the biggest successes is bottom up rather than top down um, because there are people at the bottom who recognize actually this is, is really useful, knowledgeable stuff that, as you say, will. And, and I already know that with people who've emailed me saying, you know, what? I listened to, you know, a webinar, a podcast, or read something of yours or a watched if only. And that's changed my attitude as to how, um, how I've approached a dive and I've thumbed it early uh, or I've not got in or I've changed what we were going to do. And to me, that, that's a huge, huge buzz because it's like, yes, you know, the, the changing one person at a time, is, uh, is is how you can change the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. It takes indeed. a long time. Yeah, well, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And then just spread the Yeah, life. exactly. <laughs> um, now, just to uh, back it up a, a wee smidge, for those people that are listening that, that have no clue what human factors is, do you want to try and break it down into its sim- most simplistic form, just so we've got a basis to go from?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So it, it, in its simplest term, it is how to make it easier to do the right thing And harder to do the wrong thing and that means looking at individuals it means looking at work or tasks it means looking at equipment it means looking at interactions and paperwork and understand how to reduce the friction to do the right thing so for example you know checklists are a big thing in diving at the moment Mm. and then when you look at how they're written they're often, sweeping generalization here, A written from a point of view of liability rather than execution. So there's a huge body of evidence that says, how do you design a checklist that takes human performance variability, that, that could be errors, um, and try to design them out? And a checklist isn't just a piece of paper. Or it doesn't. It's not just a piece of paper to make it effective. Mm. It requires a social and a cultural setup and a a mental approach that says, "I'm using this checklist because I'm fallible and I will make a mistake." And it's getting that message across. So there's a whole raft of issues that that need to be addressed in a as you sort of touched on earlier, holistic manner or systemic way,
2: mm.
0: rather than trying to cherry pick or fix the diver because they're they're the stupid ones is actually creating an environment where it's easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing
1: yeah yeah and i suppose one of the major barriers that you've got there is um people's personal feelings of embarrassment if they're going to thumb a dive when everyone else is more confident or more experienced whatever you know
0: oh totally the you know the, the peer pressure that we're under and the you know, ultimately, we're social creatures. We we like to be conformed to the social norms, mm. and and that's why, you know, you can start to create change at a, at a lower level with individuals and small groups, uh, because then you can start to get a swelling. It's quite difficult to create change top down, because you still need to create that that swell, that 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 influence and social conformance that happens. Mm. But you know that that sort of Peer pressure it might be touched on in in diver training and and instructor development, but I don't think it's anywhere near emphasized how much influence instructors, leaders, and peers have on others' behaviors. Mm. And you don't have to say something. Almost silence is enough to speak volumes. Um, When somebody questions, oh, is is this a good idea? And, and nobody even acknowledges that, that you know, oh, I'm not, not sure about this. Oh, I'll be okay. And you haven't actually said anything. All you've just is, is agreed with them. yeah um So there's there's a huge bit that, that looks at or that should be looked at in terms of, of interactions.
1: Mm. So the idea be- behind the training that you provide is to teach people not only how to recognize it in themselves but have the confidence to be able to say so and also recognize it in other people within the group they're diving with
0: yeah totally i mean and actually the, the core of the training is is based around the premise of creating a shared mental model an idea of what we're going to do as a team and, and why we're going to do it hmm. and that means that if there is some form of dissent you know which is, is a good thing or some conflict, that the, the peers and the leadership have created an environment where actually you don't need to have courage. Um, there's often this bit of people, you know, that you need to be brave to speak up.
2: Hmm.
0: It's like, well, hang on a minute, bravery is needed to overcome some fear, and, and the fear is generated by the social environment, that the leaders, the instructors, the peer group that are there, and therefore it's their responsibility to change that attitude that that uh, environment so that it is easy to speak up rather than having to be brave and go oh i'm gonna put my neck out in the line here because i'm gonna say something that isn't quite right um so it's yeah th- th- there's a lot to do and, and that is a normal human thing hmm. um because we are if we go back you know thousands of years to the African savannah where you lived in a tribe in a thorn bush ring, because that was the protection from the lions. Hey, you had to be conform to the the, the 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 norms of the group, because otherwise you got booted out and now outside the thorn bush, and you're on your own. So, good luck. You know, there are very, very, yeah, exactly. There are very good reasons why we have. Social conformance, yeah. whether or not they're as, as valid as they are now, is is a different thing. But you know, it's, it's hardwired. So, yeah, the training is is create that shared mental model so that people know what's happening next. And if something deviates, then they're able to, to sort of ask the question and say, "Is this right? Are we going in the right direction? Is, is this the right part of the wreck? Shouldn't we have turned around on the reef at this point?" Mm. You know, it's there, there are lots of things where where this applies.
1: Mm. See, when we're talking about it straight away, I'm thinking about a blog that I wrote about three years ago. And in it, I was trying to describe um, newcomers to the diving industry or those that want to do that open water training. And the two examples I had was the alpha male who, you know, Billy Big Bollocks, I I can do all this Mm. and don't need to listen. And uh, the the timid lady, you know, who would just focus and then do, and do everything correct. And for me, the human factor error, oh, the way I see it there is that Mr. Billy Big Bollocks, the alpha male, um, was, was hiding his true um, fears Opposances. and incompetencies yeah. of what was coming. And I think it does make me look towards the uh, professional side of diving and ask the question if there's been people qualified too hastily, too quickly, and, you know, thinking of zero to hero, and then all of a sudden you're now teaching people who have no clue how to dive in a wide variety of um, scenarios. Um, I suppose you bringing human factors into it, kind of puts a big question mark all, over all of that stuff that the majority of us in the dive industry know it occurs, but don't really approach the subject.
0: Yeah, it, it's, um, it, it is a bit of an elephant in the room. And so going to, to a wider sort of safety view as to why that perception exists of, of why the current practices are okay, A lot of safety is measured as the absence of accidents. So if you don't have any accidents and we don't have any injuries, um, we must be doing something right. Now, that doesn't take into account the number of people who are scared, um, who go off and do some training and and, and are terrified. Um, They've got that tick. They've moved on and gone, yeah, I went diving, but I didn't like it. And yet there shouldn't be a reason for that. Yes, there will be a small percentage who are um, not suited to diving and, you know, and they aren't um, being the right mental place to be underwater. Mm. So, you know, you then look at, so the, the sort of why the situation ends up as it is, is because you can cut away the safety margins, the experience the time that people are supposed to do during training. And until you have lots of accidents, you must be doing something okay. And again, that's that's normal human behavior. Mm. We will look for short-term gains over waiting for long-term benefits. Yeah. Um and, and in the case of of diving and instruction and, and the zero to hero bit is cool, I get to be a dive instructor and I I you know I get to make money out of my hobby. Mm. Um and you're right that as long as, as, long as the, the training environment in which the students are being taught is not very um, risky, you know, the, the, there's no um, additional dangers involved and everything goes fine, then actually the training must have been okay. The problem is we don't know what's going to happen on the, on, on the dive or with a student and so actually you need to have a almost a bigger box you've got the the sort of the, the core competencies that or core skills that you need mm. and then there's the bit that says sit a bit further out than that that says these are excursions that you might have and my you know my personal view is a lot of diver instructor training is teaching instructors how to teach a student how to pass a class which is not the same as how to teach a diver how to dive in the real world. Mm. Um, and and if your measure is is people graduating well w- without issues, you must be doing something right.
1: Yeah, um, but they're not getting and, that and inherent skill embedded into at yeah. second nature.
0: Yeah, and mm. and the get out of jail card for, for the organisations is you are only. Uh, certified to dive in conditions equal to better than you've already been certified. Mm. Um, so that that's the bit. He says, well, actually, you you went diving in the condition that you weren't trained for, therefore it's your fault. Mm. It's like, well, hang on a minute. You know, you, you've got to look at this at a system level rather than an in individual level.
1: Mm. Yeah. But where, where does the system start and stop for you? Because I, I was kind of discussing – this podcast before we started uh, a, couple, well, a couple of days ago actually i've got a, a mate of mine coming on next week kai steinbeck hello kai um he's a course director up in cairns and i wanted to clarify for myself albeit i am a multi-agency instructor i wanted to know specifically where the law starts and stops when it comes to training and <laughs> it's so ambiguous isn't it and his answer was literally, when they, when people are in training, then you have to follow the letter of the law. And the letter of the law is written by whichever agency is teaching and whichever agency you're teaching under. But as soon as that person is qualified and they go off on their own, there's then no law that says a diver can't do what they want. Um, so as soon as they're outside the boundaries of what they've been taught, then you know the agencies are safe. It's their problem.
0: Yeah. Oh, totally, and you know the way that risk is managed is all about risk transference. Mm. So, from uh, an A, you know, if I look at, so you ask the question, where is the boundary of the system? Mm. The, this to me, the system starts at the agency's level, or actually the bodies above. So, the the rebreather training council, the recreational scuba training council, the world recreational scuba training council. Mm. Those are the levels. That's the this almost. The top boundary. There might be some government regulation that sits above that, depending mm-hmm. on the country you're in, and then it, it ends down at the individual diver. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the system. Whether or not people have control or influence about what happens within that system, well, that's that's the way that the system has been constructed. Mm-hmm. And so, the way the organisations are set up is about transferring risk from them liability to the lowest level possible. That's what any organization would do. Yeah. So the use of liability waivers, uh, transfers, all of those things, it's about getting the risk down to the diver and or the instructor. Yeah. Um, you know, your point about agency standards, I have to teach to the agency standards because otherwise if something goes wrong, I'm liable. Hmm. Now, those agency standards may not be the best that are out there, but they are at a level which allows the agency to manage their own individual risk um, by by passing it on. You know, is it achievable to do those tasks? Yes, right. It's an instructive problem if something goes wrong. If a diver goes out on a dive operation, they will nearly always sign, uh, well, depending on where you are in the world, liability waiver forms. Mm. Um, and, and now I am accepting responsibility for what happens on this dive. Now, interestingly, in the UK, and I think Europe, they have to change the liability waiver forms, because I cannot sign away my right for your incompetence. Now, you know, to sue based on that, I can't sue based on my incompetence, but I can sue based on your incompetence. Um, Whereas a lot of international waiver forms basically say, I can't even sue you if you're incompetent. It's like, well, hang on a minute. That's your responsibility to look after me. So, uh, you know, wh- where does the system end and, and start? Mm. That it, It's about when those students are in their class, teaching them about the genuine risks that exist, not just about the physical risk of being underwater, but also the, the social risks that are there. So peer pressure or the fact that we will drift, we will have this normalization of deviance. And Dan Orr has just published a great piece in GUE's In-Depth blog today talking about normalization of deviance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking at the fact that it is a normal behavior to go from, here's my rules and I'm drifting. Mm-hmm. And and I will, I will, say, reduce my minimum gas I'm going to end a dive with or exceed my depth or the runtime or whatever it is. And everything goes okay. Um, Or it could be having more students on a class than you're supposed to, because I generate more revenue that way. But things don't go wrong, therefore nobody knows what's happening. So explaining these normal human behaviors allows risk to be better managed after the training course or or whatever it is. Understanding those error-producing conditions, the stressors that lead us to erode the safety margins that are on. Mm. um that is not explicitly taught in the training materials that that I've had people come in my course going I'm an instructor for this agency and this agency and so and so this isn't it might be touched on, but it is not explicitly explained mm. and and it really should be put into the training programs that are there
1: sure and are you trying to get them in there? you must be
0: i I am and I have been for for quite a while and and i understand the resistance from their part because actually and, and and this is often something that's forgotten is that the training agencies are businesses hmm. albeit you know publishing houses to develop training materials that then sell on to instructor trainers and instructors and then students hmm. trying to make money out of human factors based training is really difficult because it doesn't actually give you anything extra.
2: Yeah. It
0: doesn't allow you to go diving any deeper. It doesn't allow you to use any new equipment. Um, what it does is it allows you to use your brain a bit more effectively. I think also part of the resistance is that the majority of the decision makers in the, the training agencies have never done any training with me.
2: Mm.
0: So they don't even know what the programs are about and how it could fit into their existing training materials. So there is a bit of, um, I would say, genuine ignorance um, from from their part of what it looks like and how it can fit in. Yeah. And the difficulty is that I'm not a diving instructor, so I don't reach any of those agencies. So I don't know what the materials look like, where it could slot in, where you could tell a specific story about maybe cognitive biases, why we make the decisions we do, or how to create effective communications within a team um, by using certain techniques that are there, or how a team evolves in the training environment, and then how it evolves in the real-world diving environment, and and the weaknesses that that need to be recognized and dealt with. Mm. So it's a bit of an unknown from their side, and I get it, you know, that they're there to make money. Mm. Um, they're, they're
1: not charities. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, play devil's advocate, and um, it, it obviously does have a massive place in our industry. But does it have a place in recreational diving for your summer vacation kind of guys that dive once or twice a year that can't even remember how to put their equipment together? Are they going to be able to remember um, what what human factors is about?
0: um so actually the, the, the real benefit of if human factors is taught well is it's transparent to the activities that you're doing. Um, and I, I suppose to answer your question, is there something that, that can help? Yes. So at a at a recreational level is the recognition that they're fallible, that they will make mistakes. That that's the first thing. Mm. Um And then look at what are the strategies for um, making sure that we reduce the likelihood. And that would be doing pre-dive check. You know, that's a checklist. Mm. It's making sure that the instructors and the dive masters who are operating in that environment role model correct behaviors. Mm. Because those recreational divers, you know, they're there for a a week um, on a holiday, and they might be diving three or four times. They will look to the instructor or the dive master or the guide for what should be being done. Mm. And if the instructors and the, the guides, the dive masters don't do any pre-dive checks, you know, the the the, uh, the clients will then turn around and go, "Oh, cool." When you get to be really good, you don't have to do checks. Yeah. Whereas actually, the other way around, So it's it's how you influence others. So it, it doesn't have to be pure directive and and part of a lesson mm. but it can be influenced and role modeled by behaviors by others within the by others within the the sort of system that the, the dive center or, or the liverboard or whatever
1: mm. and to be honest I mean that, you touched on uh, one of my pet hates there is people not setting up their own equipment and not knowing how to do it properly now, I spent a year in Tufi in Papua New Guinea and every diver that came to visit and dive with us had to do their own equipment set up before they got on the boat just the first time. And then the boys would take over and they could check as the boys go. But just for my own sanity and and sanitization, you do your own gear. And you would be amazed at how many guests would complain because they have to do their own equipment. And then the humility when they realize that they don't know how to do their own equipment because they've not done it for so long. Now surely that's uh, an inherent problem that's going on in our industry already, with with, with us trying to be too customer carey focused, yeah, and yeah. you know, um, and again for the guests that are assuming everything's going to be done for them. Now that leads me on to another little point we were discussing a couple of days ago, and that's the um, I'm going to go on a little rant now, um, ass- assumption. And uh, Dougal Wilson on Facebook, he asked about assumptions as well and the assumptions from the guests there that the dive guide's going to do everything for them it is my pet hate that people expect a dive pro to look after them on the boat under the water if there's any emergencies the dive pro is going to sort it out and then if anything goes wrong the dive pro's at fault and all of this stuff and i don't want to rant too much all of this stuff is in my opinion what you are trying to get clarification on for the world and get it set straight yeah. where everyone everyone's in their own little box everyone works as a team everyone knows how everything should and does happen and then we've got clarity hopefully
0: yeah so you know going right back to where does the system begin if you think about where those divers have got those assumptions and those behaviours from mm. is when they would have been learnt to dive And as guests, they will have been given the minimum amount of instruction time um, to set up their gear. It would have been demoed. And then they would have been, you know, stuff would have been done for them. Tick, you've done that skill. You put your reg on the cylinder. You put your BC on the cylinder. Right, done. You've demonstrated you can do that skill. Now we've got people who will do that for you. So all you need to do is pitch up listen to some lectures, you know, again, sweeping generalization, hmm. listen to some lectures, watch some videos, get on the boat, go out to the dive site, and, you know, you get fed and watered and, and treated nicely, you get kitted up, people help you with with what's going on, and then you jump in and somebody's going to shepherd you. And so, you know, a lot of that, that initial diver training and development, you will have an instructor with you or you'll have a guide with you, a dive master with you, and, and there isn't the clarity that says, you are responsible for your activities. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm paying you a shed load of money to take me diving.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, no, I'm, I'm taking you to the dive site. Yeah. And, and you have that. So th- there is, it's, it's looking at how does it make sense for somebody right at, I'm going to say the sharp end, that's a term from the safety world, mm-hmm. the person who's right at the culfax, you know, doing stuff, how does it make sense for them to do what they did? Well, if you look back at their experiential journey and, and how they've developed and, and how they've got to where they are, that's that's why they behave the way they do. And why... Well,
1: it, I, I've got to pick on you. You did say it's a sweeping statement. It is a big sweeping statement uh, because there's a lot of instructors out there that are very, very good and very meticulous at what they do. But over time, you add in skill fade and the ignorance of, you know, future Guests and liverboards and and you know more lackadaisical, uh dive professionals, then yeah, it will creep in, but I just wanted to make sure we don't get shot down in flames there that oh no, uh, no not no, all professionals fair. are that's like fair. that you
0: know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and, and so yeah, I totally agree, and, and there are lots of professionals out there, and, and actually, we only hear about the negative outcomes that are there yeah. they you know they have a a, a disproportional effect to our understanding. And that's a cognitive bias. You know, mm-hmm. we have a, a recall or a recency effect where if something happens and it's got emotional, significant emotional um, baggage associated with it, we'll be able to recall it more easily. Yeah. And, you know, going back to defending the organizations, numerically, statistically, diving is pretty safe. You've probably got more chance of being killed or injured driving to the dive site than you do on the dive Mm. now that doesn't mean we shouldn't improve what goes on in diving but if you look at it from an organizational point of view of how much risk are we willing to tolerate well that's a that's a sound number now you won't get any of the organizations to tell you what that uh you know as low as reasonably practicable number is because that would be you know commercial reputational suicide to say yes we're happy with a fatality rate of X uh, in in those sectors, mm. and to be honest, it's not our problem. We've given them the standards; off they go. Yeah. Um, so you know, we go back to risk transfer into risk management again.
1: Yeah. Now, um, I know you've had a, a struggle all the way along the journey so far, bringing this into the dive industry. But I've got to ask: when you released the book, you must have seen quite a significant upturn of interest. It seemed yeah. to explode when you, uh, when you released that book. It, it,
0: yeah, and so I'd been struggling. So I suppose the, the, the journey started in 2010-11 where I, I wrote a white paper looking about diving incident reporting and um, safety management in the UK diving industry. And, and it went down like a bit of a lead balloon um and shortly after that i started a phd part-time self-funded phd um and the struggle there was nobody was really interested in what i was doing my goal was to try and produce something like a um something that happens in aviation where they've got a structure which looks at organizational failures supervisory failures individual failures where we set ourselves up so we're tired or we're not prepared or things like and then there's the act of failure so we Mm. make a slip a mistake or a lapse uh, or we we break a rule so that went on for about six years and in the end I stopped doing it because I was spending money I wasn't getting anywhere but in January 2016 I ran the first face-to-face training program that developed. Mm-hmm. Um, as a pilot, that went well. Another one in February, another one in April. And then somebody said, well, why don't you do the pre-learning that's there and set it up as a standalone course? And I got some traction there as people doing online learning and got some really positive feedback from, from people mm-hmm. saying, look, this stuff is you know should be in the training materials. And it wasn't until probably the spring of 18 where I was running a face-to-face class and somebody had said, why don't you write a book about this? Because people will consume it uh, as a book rather than doing online materials. So I, I had thought about that. So then they spent the next probably from the summer, like four or five months in, in the summer of 18, writing it. Uh, and then the next sort of six months, getting it edited and uh, turned around and things like that. And I'd spent a fair amount of time, try, you know, through marketing training of how do I market this? Because it's a really difficult topic to market because it, I, I was trying to do it from a safety perspective yeah. and you never market um, away from a threat. What you do is you market towards a benefit because, it's what people will want, not what people are trying to get away from. Right, right. Um, so I'd spent a lot of uh, time learning how to try and market this. So I spent the tail end of 18 marketing the book and getting the first two chapters out there so people could go on. So I had a pretty big list by the time the book was released in in March nineteen. Mm. And I spent a lot of time packaging up and signing books and and posting them out. And then it starts getting into the hands of, you know, it's a terrible term, influencers. And not just in the the sort of sports diving industry, but in the scientific and the military and the commercial. And actually people in traditional safety as well will pick it up and go, oh, hang on, this is really good. And then it starts spreading out. So, yeah, the, the, the rise was... Was was really nice to see because it's like, yes, there is there is value being created out there. Yeah. What I write in the books now, though, is knowledge is not enough; we must apply. Willing is not enough; we must do. Mm. Um, and and it's attributed a to Bruce Lee, but it came from a guy before that a guy called Gotay. Um And you know, it, it's great. I read this now. Do something with it. Yeah. Oh, that, me- that means I have to change. Why don't I change? Mm -hmm. change requires a bit of effort and energy and things like that but starting to get people to talk about things is has been huge benefit
1: yeah and is it um is the way forward to um introduce human factors to the newer divers the younger divers the ones that are more accepted uh
2: they're they're more more
1: keen to to absorb the information that's going to help them progress Rather than the the ones that might be stuck in their ways and find it difficult to introduce that change.
0: Um, so actually, I've now got five other instructors who are. So it's not just me. I've got mm. um, I've got two in the states or two in Canada at the moment. Um, I've got one in Belgium, Holland. Um, I've got one in Egypt and um, uh, and one in the UAE. Yeah. So they they do some of that sort of the, the sharing site. And actually they're all, with the exception of one, they're all diving instructors. Mm-hmm. So they give me ideas of where this could fit in. Mm-hmm. So there is a uh, a multi-pronged approach. One is to go in and try and simplify it at the, um, probably the, the rescue diver dive master level yeah. um, to try and get some interest there, to get some interest at the, I'm going to say tech curious. Mm. Those people are sitting there going, right, well, what's tech diving about? Um, and it's, like, oh, it's all about kit and depth. And, and it's like, <laughs> actually, a lot of it's about in your head yeah. uh, and, and how to make more effective decisions and how to recognize that you're going to expose yourself to greater risk. And, and understanding and practicing the stuff that's in the book helps mitigate and control some of those. And then the other bit is going in at the sort of experienced instructors. Again, we go back to the the influencer term Mm. to get them to start even just using the language. Once we start changing words, we can change worlds. Uh, And that's not my quote. That's somebody else's. I (laughs) forgot who it's it's from. (laughs) But it is. You you change the language um, and people will start changing their own behaviors accordingly. Yeah. Um, and I've seen that probably over the last two or three years and being in bigger Facebook groups where this this concept of local rationality, how does it make sense for people to do what they did? And now I see other people posting those same bits or they'll tag me in. Oh, it's great, you know, um, and I'll add a little bit of extra. But the fact that people are now able to, going to say fight those battles using stuff that i've given is incredibly rewarding yeah and and it it will it will start cascading out but it's it's a huge journey to to go on um and hey i'm 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 up for it
1: and it well it's it's not going to stop growing is it i mean you've you've mentioned you've got five um instructors or yeah yeah who who are they i've got five instructors give them a shout out
0: so there's the five instructors I've got at the moment, and there's four in training. I'm waiting for them to sign off. So the five instructors are Guy Shockey, who's in Vancouver. There's Helen Pellerin, who's in Quebec. Uh, there's Bart Danauden, who's in the Netherlands. And there's Jenny Lord in Dahab. And Darrell Owen is in the UAE. Mm-hmm. And I've got four others, who, and that's Meredith Tangay, who's in Florida. Uh, Chris Tibble in the U.K., uh, Beatrice Rivara in Italy and Mike Mason, who's up in uh, Newcastle. Uh, so w- two weeks ago, we were supposed to be running the certifying uh, workshops, uh, but obviously COVID has uh, knocked that on the head. So I'm, I'm hoping as soon as we can start travelling, I can get to uh, to certify them, and then there will be four more instructors able to to deliver the materials.
1: Okay, so we're gonna have nine nine global instructors. That's a that's a hefty run from. When was the book released? 2019, wasn't it? And then we've had a year of... March 19, yeah. (laughs) We can exclude last year because we couldn't do anything.
0: Well, interestingly, didn't do anything face-to-face. But to me, COVID actually was a bit of a a blessing in disguise because people were then stuck at home going, what do I do? And I'd already started in tail end of 2019 delivering a webinar-based 10-week program. Um, and since then, I've delivered six of those. So there's about 200 people um, nice. have gone through some training um, since, you know, since uh, via the online webinar basis. Mm. Um, so, and they then speak, and uh, I'll, I'll give a, a shout out to Mateus, uh, who's down in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, he's changed the the culture of his club having come on a course with me last year. And gone. Oh, this has blown my mind. I, I I can't stop thinking about it. I'm going to take this stuff. And and they got rid of the wooden weight belt award within their club, which was about the biggest or most embarrassing screw up somebody had done yeah. the previous year. And he said, "Look, this is really demeaning. This is you know, yes, it's funny." But nobody's really happy to to receive this. Yeah. So he stopped that, and I said, "Well, you, you could still turn it around. You could still issue a prize, but do it for the biggest learning experience of the year yeah. uh, when it comes to diving." Um, and now you've you've you know recognized the learning that's happening uh, in the club. So really proud of of Mateus Verrett for sorting that one out. On it.
1: Can you say he's in Victoria? Is he Australia?
0: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 Dan and yeah down in melbourne
1: hook us up I'll, yeah. I'll come and have a dive i've not dived melbourne yet and i keep itching to do it every time i go there it's just not long enough to be there but yeah itching mattias i'll come diving with you yeah <laughs> and i don't want the wooden belt
0: <laughs> <laughs> well no you could have the best learning experience there we go yeah it's a yes. positive thing
1: yeah <laughs> um well soon as we're talking about Australia, and you're obviously in the UK, and we've mentioned Canada, America, all that kind of thing. Um, one thing I've noticed with with working and diving in various locations around the world now is that when you go to particular countries, they have a, a, a different kind of take on how you should be diving. Now, by that I mean um, Thailand. Some people will moan about it, say it's a bit blasé. Well, it's not. Um, those places that are a very dense population of people going through basic training the courses tend to be run quite tight because they've got to be up to standard with everyone else who's producing Um, conversely you come to Australia and um, Aussies are pretty laid back and you know take everything in their stride Um, and I found it quite shocking to see how many people go solo diving just off the shoreline here, um, mm-hmm. with no redundant air supplies, and it just seems to be the norm. I find that quite frightening, but I think there's got to be a place there for. I think we mentioned it. The other, what do you call it the other day? Culture or cultural differences? Yeah, culture,
0: your culture awareness. Yeah.
1: Have you Have you experienced much of that so far going through the training and the the guys that you've been doing these courses with?
0: N- not necessarily. Because they're a self-selecting audience that, that comes on the, the, the training programs anyway. So they're, they're, they're the early adopters. They're the people who see the, the benefit of self-development. Um, what I have seen is um, a little bit about... I haven't done much out in... The, in you know, I've done some training in New Zealand and Australia... I've done one session in Bali, but they were all sort of expats that were were in, in Bali. So they weren't really indicative of, of the culture that's there. Yeah. Um, in, in Europe, there are certainly different um, behaviours be- between sort of countries. Um, so it's certainly an area that needs to be looked at in terms of incidents. But I don't think I, I haven't really encountered it myself now. What I did find interesting with your comment about Thailand. So here's a cognitive bias straight away mm-hmm. is that my my perception of learning to dive out in Thailand is not great mm-hmm. because it's about getting people through the door as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and the driving factor is more about money than quality because of the, the clientele that you're likely to be training, mm-hmm. in that they they want a bucket ticket, you know, a bucket list ticket that says. Done diving, move on.
1: Yeah, I'm going to the full and, moon party. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, and the you know the the I don't know whether or not your use of the word tight meant tight as they were the high quality and they were having to compete, mm. or whether or not they were tight because they were running back to back courses and and so they couldn't. Um, there's no flex for somebody who's not quite good enough mm. to have some extra dives. Well, oh, fine, sign off and, and off you go. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, there is a, a huge amount that, that needs to be taken into account in culture. So go back to your book, ramble, 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 go back to your point about solar diving in Australia. Mm. Look at the system and, and the, how the, the local culture will change risk perceptions mm. and what can be done to do that. So if you know that something is lacking in an output well, you need to change what the input is. So is, is that the instructors, if they're not happy about people solo diving because that's the norm, well, actually there needs to be more emphasis on teamwork and shared mental models and re- not relying, but working together as mm. a team during the training program. Yeah. Because if it's not emphasized then, you know, most courses are individuals who come together as a group, learn. and and they go off, they don't interact and operate together as a team. And you can do that at a recreation level. Mm. It just requires the instructor to up their game and up their knowledge and their skills to be able to teach that.
2: Mm.
0: So – and, you know, the fact that they don't take redundant air supplies with them, well, if that's not something that's been emphasised or taught or or brought up in training, don't be surprised that people don't do it outside of the training because, you know – and, and their argument, well, they should know about these risks. They, they can learn from others. Mm. Well, then we get into the social conformance piece. Well, everybody else is diving without redundant air. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to? Because they're not all d- dropping like flies. Therefore, it must be safe. Mm. So these are all bits of, of the human factors jigs- jigsaw puzzle that, that needs to be taken into account.
1: Mm. It's a massive the jigsaw puzzle, isn't it?
0: Oh, it's it's huge! It's huge, and and I think this is, you know, the human factors is is general in approach and specific in application, and by that I mean cognitive biases, social interactions, the way we make decisions, the way we make communications. There's a huge body of research that explains how this works, Mm. but how to create change at an individual level, or a team level, or a dive center level, has to be specific. So, I, I. I'm much better at answering specific problem type questions than writing something generic. Because if you write something generic, people go, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. That's another bias that we have. Yeah. You know, that they're different to me, so it doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Well, hang on a minute. Why is it any different? But I have got examples of being in Southeast Asia where authority or or the, the social culture which is normally termed as a sort of authority gradient where a junior diver or an inexperienced diver won't question a more senior person yeah but it's not as simple as just this seniority piece it's about respect and we are a family that actually we're gonna we wouldn't question our fathers or our uncles or, or you know the, the patriarch setup. Because they might give me something later on. And so you get to be in situations, and I know instructors will operate out there, where they will um, fail something on the leader, the team leader, the, the dive that's going on, and the rest of the team, or they'll get the, the leader to make a mistake, and the rest of the team will just sit there and not question or challenge what's going on. And so there's there's a huge learning that's needed for the instructors to understand these behaviors and come up with strategies to inform their students that says look once you're out of the the, the cover and the, the the protection of an instructional setting you're out on your own mm. and that means that you have to be aware of these and if things do go wrong you have to say something before it becomes catastrophic yeah so it's yeah it's a it's a huge jigsaw
2: puzzle
1: yeah yeah I must. Have, I'm sitting here listening to you and just thinking back over what we've discussed over the last however long, and it's an awkward topic. I mean, we've got to say it, it is an awkward topic to talk about, and especially. I mean, I'm 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 not forwarding. I'm not, you know, shy in coming forward and speaking what I want to speak. Um, but I found myself second, you know, thinking twice, thinking before I speak, which is not usually me. Um. So I think <laughs> I can now understand a little bit more why it takes ten weeks of webinars to to get this training across because that you've got some some massive voids to cross and a lot of barriers to break down for this to be a success.
0: Yeah. Oh, totally. And you know, I look at where aviation you know started in the eighties mm-hmm. because they were blaming pilots for pilot error, sticking the aircraft in the ground because they were. You know, not paying attention or miscommunicating and wrong, wrong selections, but ultimately boiled down to pilot error. Mm. And it wasn't until they started looking at the cockpit voice recorders and the flight data recorders. And they said, Oh, hang on a minute. They, they, they There was an awareness of what was going on, but they were unable to share that picture amongst the rest of the crew. And when they did, it was potentially too late. And then they start looking at, Well, hang on a minute. The errors didn't just happen in the cockpit, they would have been. Developed from the aircraft design or air traffic controls design or airport design mm. and start looking further back up. So you start taking a systems view about what's going on. So even though aviation has been doing this for 40 plus years, 50 years or so, mm. they still have issues. And they still have, you know, aircraft crashes, they still have miscommunication issues, all of those things. And that's an incredibly regulated industry. Mm. Healthcare has been doing it for probably about 15 years and they really struggle um, because of the dynamic environment, the pressures and the social, cultural issues that exist in in a healthcare environment. Um, And in the UK, they're starting to bring some formal structure to human factors into the clinical environment based on work by a guy called Martin Bromley, um, who's formed the clinical human factors group as a way of trying to get that. And there's now governmental support to, to what they're doing. And, and the colleges, the surgeons, anaesthetists, dentists, whatever, are now starting to put stuff together. Um, in the diving industry, it's it's me and a band of followers who are going, this is a good idea. We need to do it. Mm. Um, and, and I get the resistance. There aren't dead bodies lying up. Therefore, it must be okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't say right—I should have said it right at the start of this bloody episode, to be honest. You've had, you're 25 years in the air force. You're actually a navigator, weren't you?
0: Yeah, yeah, Hercules navigator in a, a multi-crew environment, and then went on and did a, a masters in aerospace systems, which is where my knowledge of human factors and and sort of the deeper knowledge, and that's when I sort of started digging deeper, mm. and then went into flight trials um, with Airbus. So, picked up some human factor stuff there. Then worked in research and development, and then worked in procurement and systems engineering. So, a very broad view of the world. And, mm. and, and it was during the the latter sort of five years of my time in the air force that I started the PhD. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a, a huge breadth.
1: I was just going to say, anyone, any of the divers that are out there are thinking, "Oh, I'm not going to listen to this fellow. He's not even a he's not even a professional. He's not even an instructor." Well, I, I think you kind of top it for. Um, you know, have an experience in a structured uh, work environment and how teamwork comes together? Mm. Just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and
0: so, yeah, That and, and from the diving side of the majority of my training has gone through GUE. Um, so I did fundamentals in 2006 uh, where I only had about 40 dives to my name. So I was I was really lucky that I didn't have to unlearn a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since then, um, I've probably got about 800 dives, uh, certified at the highest levels to, you know, my, my highest levels of GUE Tech two, which is a, an advanced trimix course mm-hmm. and, uh, JJ rebreather, uh, which I'm going to get recertified on at the end of May, okay.
2: um,
0: to get back up to speed on that. So, but I know there was a question about rebreathers.
1: Yeah, I yeah I that was, um, what was it, uh, Lisa, Lisa Marie, yeah. Um, what and did you so, talk on rebreathers yeah. then? That was a, that was a whole <laughs> new topic. What's my view topic? on
0: rebreathers? <laughs> so my view on rebreathers, um, are they safe, are they unsafe? Uh, a, a piece of equipment is not unsafe in of itself. And as a simple example, is a hairdryer could be safe. It's not particularly safe. You sit in a bath and put the hairdryer in the water with you, mm. <laughs> um, and, and and so it, it's this need to look at a system again. So rebreathers have been designed to the level that the um, the market will support, mm. and by that I mean is it costs manufacturers money to design, build, certify. And they've got to recoup that money and then they've got to make a profit, otherwise, they're not a a valid, sustainable business. Mm. So the diving community won't pay much more than they pay already um, for for what's there. So in terms of maturity and equipment set, it's probably, you know, there are little nuances, but it's probably about as mature as it's going to get. Then we look at the other pieces of the system, and that's the training agencies, the instructors, and the divers themselves. Um, and how they all come together is how to create a safe diving, inverted commas, safe diving operation on a rebreather and recognize that it's working together that creates safety, not a re-bre- rebreather is unsafe. Yeah. The difficulty is. That there is Again, there is no formal training that goes into agency training materials that talk about human fallibility and cognitive biases and why checklists are designed the way they are. They could probably be improved mm-hmm. um, to make them, you know, to have less friction, um, to be in a situation that you operate as a team. And if one of the team isn't using a checklist, That you've created the environment that actually, if I'm not using a checklist, I expect you to call me out. Yeah. And if you're not using one, I'm going to call you out. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's 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 not easy Mm. because those those soft bits are not easy to measure. Um, It's much easier to measure simple compliance when delivering a course, but that doesn't necessarily help you. develop competencies and attitudes and the the final piece then is the expectation that if you haven't re- reached a standard then you don't get a certification now I know some agencies put that in the the hands of the instructor that says are they have they got the right attitude to dive this equipment if not then you can refuse certification yeah. that has to be explained really clearly before the course starts. Because otherwise you're going to end up with a whole world of hurt that says, hang on a minute, I matched all the skills and it's just your opinion that I'm not safe. Mm. And so, you know, you end up with conflict there. Yeah. So to answer the question, Lisa, my view is they are a valid tool and they're potentially safer than open circuit at certain depths. Um, However, you also need to train in shallower depths to be able to go to the deeper depths to, to be competent when things go wrong. And you also need to have the attitude that says, this thing can fail, I need to know what it's doing all the time, and I can resolve those failures, and that means I need to go and practice them. And there's nothing wrong with doing drills in a quarry in the shallows to make sure that you're competent to deal with almost no notice failures, because those failures, if we knew they were going to come, we'd do something about them.
1: For sure. I mean, it's got to be second nature. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is through training, Plain and simple. Mm-hmm. What Yeah, and
0: w- with effective feedback,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Happy days. We've been going on for quite some time now. <laughs> so we have. It must be time for your <laughs> breakfast and time for me to have a beer. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. How can people just get in touch with with you and, and where can they find you online? We'll put them in the show notes as well, but give them a call out.
0: Yeah, so the easiest way is thehumandiver.com um and uh that there's a contact page there that that sends a, a form through to me um so that that's the easiest bit there's a facebook page as well our facebook group rather we've got six and a half thousand people in which if you just uh search in facebook for human factors in diving then you will uh, you'll find that and i'd really recommend anybody um who wants to learn more about human factors in a in a 30-minute documentary is to go onto the Human Diver website, go to the top and look at If Only, click the link there and watch a documentary, which will bring a tear to some people's eyes because it deals with a fatality and it deals with raw emotion of the dive team that lost a member. Mm. And it's told; the story is told through a lens of human factors and a just culture, which is about understanding how it made sense for somebody to do what they did. There are also some additional notes. So if you're inclined to take this further, there is a guide that explains the event in more details and also teaches you how to run a workshop on how to learn more about or learn from um, the uh, the documentary, if only. And and you can get the book from, from the website as well or from Amazon.
1: Happy days. Well, we'll put it all in the show notes. If you want to, if you want to put a link to this on your website, feel free, and people can listen to it who haven't already. And I'll put a few links in for that. Um, if only Doco, yeah, I'll put that into the show notes as well, so they've got a direct link to you there. Um, That's awesome, Gareth. It's been awesome. Thanks. Um, so much, Matt. Let's do it again at some point, especially with all these new instructors that are coming through. We can put something together. And, yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Happy days.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much, Matt. And uh, have fun to everybody. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks very much, mate. And goodbye, everybody. This
0: is Scuba Go Go. The podcast for the inquisitive diver.